Hey, uh, congratulations, you've, you've made it to the last speaker, right? So uh, I promise uh, I won't take too, too long, and then uh, we'll, we'll come back up and we'll have uh, some Q&A. So every speaker that's been on the stage today will kind of realign these chairs, and uh, we'd love to interact with you, the audience. Um, so whatever questions you have, I hope you've been jotting those down, So we'd love to talk to you about those uh, as soon as I'm done. Um, is Sylvia McCollum in here anywhere? Sylvia, stand up. Come on, stand up. Hey, guys, so this, this day has gone fairly smoothly, I, I would hope. Um, it's all because of Sylvia McCollum. So let's give her a good round of applause. She's like the, she's like the event ninja, you know, making stuff happen. So uh, good job, uh, Sylvia. We're glad you're on the team. So you've heard from, uh, you've heard from uh, uh, Dr. Daryl Bach, who was uh, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary. You've heard from Justin, Dr. Justin Bass. Funny, I have to call him doctor. He is a doctor. But I went to, uh, we got our master's degrees together. So with uh, Dr. Justin Bass, you've heard from Dr. Dan Wallace, who has been a mentor of mine and uh, actually performed my wedding. Um, and you've heard from Dr. Mike Lacona, and now you get to hear just from Nathan, right? <laughs> like, who's that guy? <laughs> Why is he here? Um, which is actually uh, a great question. So that might be a great question you can come ask on Monday nights. Um, I will probably not have a sufficient answer for you. Um, so, but hey, I, I, you know, as we, as we were putting this day together, we were thinking like, hey, we, we definitely don't want to just uh, get everybody into a room and and throw a bunch of historical evidence at you, um, that, that obviously is what we do want to do because we believe that um, the truth is, uh, well, we believe that the truth is a person, which is what I'm going to talk about. Um, but, but we believe that, um, that the truth is on uh, our side, um, if we can say it like that. It's a little anthropocentric, but it's still, it's on our side. Um, hopefully we are on the side of truth. But <clears throat> at, the, at the same time, we were like, man, we, we really want people to walk away, though, with a sense of so what, like like so what if if uh, if the the earliest sources from Paul are reliable? So what if um, if Mark's gospel is historically accurate? So what if um, Jesus is raised from the dead? Um, so what? And and so what what I want to talk to you about for the next thirty minutes or so is is to hopefully answer that question and and to give you uh, a, an accurate. Um, representation, not of some uh, far-off historical figure that, just like in the slide that I'm showing you, is a little bit blurry and unknowable, but to connect the dots for you. Um, so early, early on in, in uh, the, the primitive Christian community, in fact, in the book of Acts, which tells us about the primitive Christian community, um, the, the, the way is mentioned at, at least four times. Right. And, and most of the time, it's, it's, it's that uh, uh, Saul and people like Saul are attempting to persecute people who are of the way. They're walking in the way, um, which is fascinating to me. Like, well, what, <laughs> I mean, what's the way? Um, and and I, I think probably the best and definitely the most simple explanation for the way is that there was a man who lived. He physically walked on the earth, just like you and me. He lived, he breathed, he laughed, he cried. Um, he was filled with joy. He was filled with, with sorrow. He experienced pain. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, right? 
Um, he, he died a common criminal's death on a Roman cross. And then, just like Mike gave you really good evidence for, that this man got up from the dead. So, um, and that man, central to his entire life, was his claim that he said, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you do not come to the Father except through me. Right? Talk about polarizing, right? I mean, in a, in a relativistic, like, all-inclusive um, society, especially like ours. I mean, the, the message of Jesus is just as polarizing today as it was back then when, when the church was experiencing very real, intense persecution, as we are still today throughout the world. I would encourage you to um, keep track of how our brothers and sisters are being persecuted around the world. Pray for them um, and get ready um, because I don't think it's always going to be as comfortable as we think it is. Um, so they're, they're called, uh, the, the people are walking in the way. And I think even now as we try to translate, like what is the way? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century? Uh, the, the, the first thing that came to my mind were two different people groups. And so I want to I talk about these two different people groups. And, and then I want to talk about a, another way that I think may um, get at the heart, the essence of Christianity um, as it was in, in the first century um, uh, for those who physically walked with Jesus and then those who a- after his resurrection and he had appeared to them um, to 500 of them at the same time and then, um, uh, and then to, to, to many others, um, that um, what, what does it mean to, for them to walk in the way and, and, uh, and, and how is that different? So the first person I want to talk about is the antagonist. And, and probably this represents a minority of those of you who are sitting in here today, but I also believe that there probably are some of you who are antagonistic to Christianity. You're skeptical or you're just hostile um, to the claims of Jesus, to um, all of the things that we've been talking about today. And so the, the, the things that I typically, as I, as I do the ministry of apologetics in a very real way, world sense here at Watermark and, and encountering atheists, agnostics, skeptics, um, people with just doubts um, all, the, all across the spectrum. These are typically um, the, the major points that would characterize the antagonist. The first one is, is that very few people have an actu- actually have an accurate view of what Christ is claiming to be. They have, a, they have a, uh, an inaccurate view of what Christianity is. And so they end up painting a caricature of Christ and then kind of destroying that caricature, which is a straw man argument, right? You guys know this logical fallacy, right? I've heard the straw man fallacy. It's where the argument is actually here, but in order to, to defeat that argument, which you can't really do, um, you have to build another argument over here and then beat it that with the stick. You misrepresent the argument and then destroy the false argument. It's a straw man. Um, uh, one, my buddy, Justin, um, who spoke earlier and will be up here for Q&A, um, showed me this quote just this week um, by Catherine Tate. She's the daughter of uh, the atheist uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell. You guys know this guy? Um, so <clears throat> she said this about her dad. She said, I believe my, myself that his whole life was a search for God or for those who prefer a less personal term for absolute certainty. Somewhere at the back of my father's mind, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God, and he never found anything else to put in it. 
He seized on the follies, which were many, and labeled them official religion, while claiming that Christians have never taken seriously the good parts of Christ's teaching, but he never dealt with it seriously either. When he wanted to attack religion, he sought, sought it out its most egregious errors and held them up to ridicule while avoiding serious discussion at the basic message that I found so liberating. She, she's painting a picture of her dad who, in this caricature straw man type um, methodology, would, would paint this picture of Christianity and he would never get at its essence. He, he, was always, uh, he was always beating a, at a, uh, a straw man that was representative for him of Christianity. And, and I, I, found this, I find this so common among the antagonist today, um, who as soon as you're actually like presenting any kind of like solid, concrete, ev- historical evidence for them to consider, and then also getting to um, even beyond the concrete historical evidence to the essence of Christianity, a lot of times what I see is blank stares. It's like they've never even heard this before, Right? And so I, I hope that my time today is, is a little bit of a corrector of that. If that's you, if that is you, welcome. <laughs> I'm really glad that you're here. I hope that you are, um, I hope that you're chewing on the meat that we've been giving you today um, to, to actually consider, hey, um, there's actually good reasons um, that Christians believe that Jesus is who he said he was. There's actually good, solid reasons for, for someone to rationally hold to a worldview at which the very center, the, 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 the term ends realissimum, the, the ultimate reality is that, that created the world, who sustains it, who sources it, actually became a man and dwelt among us. And we saw him. We saw his glory. Right? So there's good reasons. We, we have a reasonable faith, as, as uh, there's a ministry called that, um, reasonable faith. Um, go talk to those guys, <laughs> right? The other thing I see from the antagonist is I see culture war sound bites, right? Man, nothing drives me, well, that's not true. Other stuff drives me more crazy. But this annoys me a lot, right? When, when you hear someone who's, who's kind of the, you know, I, I went to, uh, uh, I was in the military and I served in Afghanistan. And we called these guys who were uh, kind of these two-bit um, dudes that would fight us, we called them $10 Taliban, you know, because somebody would come by and be like, hey, will you come fight the Americans with us? And they're like, well, I, I don't got any crops. My family's starving to death because of all the corruption in the country. You pay me 10 bucks, I'll go fight the Americans. And we called them $10, $10 Taliban, right? It's, it's the guy that has a gun and he's shooting at you, but he has no training. He has no, he's not even thinking about what's going on. He's just hoping he survives, right? So, and, 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 or, um, uh, and sometimes these people can be um, kind of a... Uh, uh, a ten dollar um, uh, antagonist, a, a ten dollar ske- skeptic. A um, sometimes I, I like to call them YouTube skeptics, right? Um, it's, it's the people that like spend all of their time on YouTube and then um, think that they can go out and and uh, and destroy the Christian faith. And uh, and and so I, I think that um, man, it, this this typically defines um, the the antagonist. You, you hear a lot of just culture war type language without really any substance behind it. If you actually start to talk substantively about the issue, they typically fall away pretty quickly. All right, so that's the first person. Um, and again, I, I don't say I'm, I really am just trying the best I can to to represent um, this person. Um, not in any kind of bad way. If that's you, then again, um, we, we're glad that you're here. Um, I, I hope that, um, you, that this has been um, encouraging for you, challenging for you to think about. The other person, and I would say that this person 
um, is, is much more dominant and, and, and uh, probably more widely represented in this audience. It's definitely widely represented in my life, right? And th- that other person is the moralist. So the antagonist looks at the way, at walking in the way, and it's kind of funny to him. It doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. It's like, whatever, you're talking about like flying spaghetti monsters and all this kind of stuff like, ha, 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 they laugh at you, but they're not really substantively dealing with, with the issues, and that's their view of the way. It's a joke. But the moralist, on the other hand, um, takes walking in the way extremely seriously. And, but of the moralist, and, and I would say that the, the moralist, just as the antagonist, um, has a false view of the way. And, and primarily because I think every single moralist that you run across has a skewed view of God. Right? For, for the moralist, the highest end is, is, is not God himself. The highest end is good moral behavior. It's me turning into a good little boy or, or, or someone turning into a good little girl of, of us behaving ourselves. Of us, of us performing in such a way that God must be pleased with me, right? And, and I'm, just, I'm just telling you, if your view of God is that you have to behave in such a certain way, um, that, that you have to uh, morally behave in, in a certain way in order for God to accept you and for him to be pleased with you, then your view of God is skewed, which is what hopefully the rest of my time um, will, will show you. Um, again, the second, secondly, they have a massive overemphasis on behavior. They're constantly judging themselves by other people and be like, man, I'm bad, but I ain't that bad. <laughs> Look at that guy over there. Dang. Right? Um, uh, they're constantly evaluating their own behavior. They're constantly looking to be like, man, um, I mean, it's, it's the Pharisee. Like, thank, thank you, Lord, that you made me like that guy. Um, and, and even in a negative sense, like we can focus so much on our sin that, that really our behavior becomes an idol for us, right? And then lastly, and I think probably most uh, prevalent, is this idea of mission idolatry. And what I mean by that is um, we have, it's, it's the guy that, that kind of grabs his, 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 uh, uh, his tool and says, hey, Jesus told me to go get busy for Jesus. And so here I go, you know, marching to the, beat of the drum that I'm supposed to march to. I'm being as faithful as I can. And man, Jesus is going to change the world through me or, or, or I am going to change the world for Christ. You guys ever heard this type of language, right? This, this like con- conquest type language of, of, man, there's that hill. We've got to go take that hill for Christ. And what ends up happening is, is that doing things for Jesus actually begins to replace being with Jesus which is the essence of discipleship to Jesus. Right, so even in the Great Commission, right? You, you guys know, I mean, if, if you grew up like I did, it's one of the ver- first verses that I memorized, right? <clears throat> Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, right? And you're like, all right, let's get busy. Let's go, Right? And, and what you end up doing is, is you end up um, operating out of your own strength, out of your own attempt to control your life and your situation and the situations around you so that you can manipulate them for the glory of God, right? It's couched in the language that sounds good, but at the center of it is a demon, right? And that is that it's you and not God, Right? Um, what's crazy to me anyway, I wrote my master's thesis on the Great Commission, is, is that um, there's this word at the very last phrase. Um, it's a demonstrative particle. 
right? I know they're like, whoa, it's not a monster particle. <laughs> you know? it, we translate it, uh, behold. It's an it's a emphasis marker. It's the thing that says, hey, pay attention to this right here, right? And he says, behold. And he could have said anything, right? But what did he say? I am with you, right? I am with you. I am operating. It's my power that is accomplishing something. It's me who is operating in the world. Like, I didn't just get out of the grave to disappear into history. I got out of the grave to actively move in the hearts of men to change them from rebels and traitors back into sons, right? And, and so um, here's Jesus' invitation uh, over and against both of those types of people, um, the antagonist and the moralist. You have Jesus who says, hey, it's, it's not about um, thinking that this is a joke. It's not about you ridiculing me. It's not about you going and doing things off in your own strength and trying to morally um, uh, please me. Really, ultimately, it's not about you at all. It's about me. And so he says, the invitation, the very essence of Christianity is, is when Jesus, and I, I love it uh, to just try to picture when he says these types of things. I mean, it, it's good discipline, actually, to kind of um, close your eyes, put, um, put yourself um, in that time and space where Jesus is, is moving and teaching and talking and inviting people in. And he says this in, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come, come to me. Everybody who's weary and burdened, because I, pro- I promise you, those two people, the antagonist and the moralist, equally alike, are weary and burdened. Why? Because if you try to find life apart from Jesus, you're going to be weary and burdened. You can't find life apart from Jesus. It doesn't exist. It's impossible. And so what Jesus is doing is over and against your attempts at this, either to ridicule me or do it on your own, I am calling you to myself. Everybody who is weary and burdened, and I will give you something to do. (laughs) Right? I will give you a moral code to follow. I will give you an ethical list to check off. I'll give you rest. Jesus wants to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You guys know about yokes, right? Where the yoke is on the, the mama animal and then the other part is on the um, child and, 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 and the, mama is, it, the mama is doing all the work. He's just training them to go. Um, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the invitation of Jesus to you today to come. Regardless of where you are, come. So let's look at a passage. It's one of my favorite ones. I've been, I've been meditating on this actually for a long time. And, and, and because against the antagonist and against the moralist, I think Jesus is presenting something entirely different, right? And so right before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17, um, he literally, like this is, some people call it the high priestly prayer. Jesus is, is praying literally in the garden of Gethsemane right before he's betrayed, arrested, and goes to the cross. And I want to start in verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, 
Turn with me really quick. And I want to show you that I think Jesus is up, is up to something else than we normally think that, that, that he is. He says this, starting in verse 20. Um, he's, he, Jesus is praying to his father, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess who that is? Any of y'all who have come, right? You want to see where Jesus prays for you in the Gospels? There it is. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for me. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, of all the people who are like, hey, will you pray for me? You know, Jesus is a good one to have, right? Jesus, will you pray for me? And he does, right here. And what, what, so what does he pray? Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. That's crazy. May they, us, may, may we be in the Father and the Son. What? That's crazy. That, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. There's this unifying um, uh, uh, um, just glue that's taking place to say, I'm going to encompass you in my life. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. Check this out. And that I myself may be where? in them. That's totally different. Right? That's, that's something uh, entirely um, foreign to the, the two people I've already described. And so when we talk about discipleship to Jesus, um, what does this life in Christ look like? Well, I think it has two facets. It's really simple. It's, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's very difficult to comprehend. It's very difficult to, to stay in, but it's, but it's simple what he's teaching. And the first thing he's saying is, when you come, then you're entering into my life, right? So the very first thing that we need to talk about when, when entering into the life of Jesus is, is what type of life, what is he talking about there? And the, and the first thing I would say is, well, he's talking about redemption. He's talking about reversal, we are, we are fundamentally flawed. We have gone our own way. And, and we've tried to find life in every other place um, that we can other than the place where life actually exists. And, and Jesus has come to say, hey, in order for that to be reversed, I have to step into this for you. And so what kind of life did we see Jesus live? Who did he hang out with? He hung out with tax collectors, sinners, outcasts. Right? The people who knew, the people who knew that they were the furthest away from God, that's who Jesus ran to. Because even though in their mind they thought they were the furthest away from God, actually that's when they were the closest to actually entering in. Because they knew they were helpless. They knew they were powerless. They knew they couldn't do anything at all. And that's where we have to be if you want to walk in the way. 
Jesus was just N.T. Wright. Um, it's one of my um, favorite writers. He said, he said this. Um, he said, Jesus was welcoming sinners, keeping company with the unclean. And then he says this. This is such a cool um, phrase. He says, Jesus was welcoming sinners, keeping company with the unclean. Their taint, their sin, was to what? Was to infect him at last. That's cool, right? I mean, you had, you had to wonder if you were his disciple. I mean, right, I'm just going to cursory go over a couple, a couple of the miracles that, that Jesus does, right? He turns water into wine at Canaan. It's the first thing that he's doing to kind of launch his public ministry. And then you see him, like, walk on water. And then this woman who's terminally ill for, like, 13 years, um, 12, 13 years, has come up to him. And he, he just brushes her. And instead of the disease transferring to Jesus, um, when, when he heals lepers or other unclean people, instead of the disease transferring to him, what happens? Life transfers to them, right? I mean, most, pretty much, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, um, I think if a diseased person who's infectious touches another biological being that, that um, can catch that infection, then the infection gets passed along, not, not the other, it's not like life gets passed. And yet, here is Jesus who's passing life along to people, Right? And then, if you're his disciple and you're kind of walking around with him, you're thinking, this is kind of crazy what's going on. Um, that woman who we maybe even knew who she was, I don't, we, do, we don't know, the text doesn't say, but maybe we did. And, and we know that she's been um, at the hands of doctors for many years, and now she's totally healed. What in the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. And, and yet, um, here he is, um, um, and he... he, he he does this a couple of times in the Gospels, but, but I, I love just the, the, the section in John chapter 11 where he comes and says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And then right after he claims this, he goes to Lazarus' tomb and, and he tells um, the dead man who's in the tomb, hey, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Right? I mean, you got to be wondering, like, I mean, you, you got to be, if, like, if you have a pipe then, then you're, like, stuffing that dude, like, I'm putting that stuff in my pipe, and I'm smoking that. You know what I'm saying? Like, the dead guy came out. You, look, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but I think it probably was a really natural question for Jesus' disciples to wonder, how are you going to die? Right? I mean, when you touch diseased people, you heal them. When you encounter death, you reverse it. How are you going to die? Right? This is a really natural question that I, I, I think probably crossed their minds before. And, and, and what C.S. Lewis says that I just love because I love C.S. Lewis, but also what he says, right, is he says, Jesus was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from other people. You want to know how Jesus died? He died your death. He died my death. That's how he died. He laid down his life to take on the death that you owed, that you could not pay. And he absorbed it like a sponge to transfer to you the life of God, to bring you into the triune life, to bring you into the love of God. So when we enter in, we are entering into the way by the way. He is the way and the truth and the life. The ultimate purpose of life is nothing less than to enter into the life of God. It's not to be a good person. 
It's not to accomplish great things. It's not to make a name for yourself or to build a legacy or anything about you at all. It is about entering into the love and life of God. That's it. And so I'm just telling you, if you think that following Jesus um, is, is some way that leaves that part out, then you're not walking in the way. That is the very center of Christianity. Love this, love this quote from Henry Nouwen. You guys know Henry Nouwen? He's dead. So you probably don't know him. But you can get to know him if you read his books. I, I told a guy the other day, I was like, hey, I read, I read a Nouwen book today. It took me about 30 minutes, <laughs> which is true if you know Henry Nouwen. Um, he does, his, his writings were not long. I said it was 30 minutes, but it's probably the best 30 minutes that I've spent in a long time, right? It's about this short, he packs a punch. That's Henry Nouwen, all right? So if you haven't read him, I'd definitely encourage you to check it out. This is from Making All Things New. He, said, he says this, The inexhaustible love between the Father and the Son includes and yet transcends all forms of love known to us. It includes the love of a father and a mother, a brother and a sister, a husband and wife, a teacher and a friend. But it also goes far beyond the many limited and limiting human experiences of love that we know. It is a caring and yet a demanding love. It's a supportive yet severe love. It's a gentle yet strong love. It's a love that gives life yet accepts death. In this divine love, Jesus was sent into the world. To this divine love, Jesus offered himself on the cross. This all-embracing love, which epitomizes the relationship between the Father and the Son, is a divine person, co-equal with the Father and the Son. It has a personal name. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son and pours himself out in the Son. The Son is loved by the Father and returns all he is to the Father. The Spirit is love itself, eternally embracing the Father and the Son. The eternal community of love is the center and the source of Jesus' spiritual life, a life of uninterrupted attentiveness to the Father and the Spirit of love. It is from this life that Jesus' ministry grows, his eating and fasting, his praying and acting, his traveling and resting, his preaching and teaching, his exercising and healing were all done in the spirit of love. We will never understand the full meaning of Jesus' richly varied ministry unless we see how the, many thi- how, how the many things are rooted in the one thing, listening to the Father and to intimacy of perfect love. When we see this, we will also realize that the goal of Jesus' ministry is nothing less than to bring us into this most intimate community. The heart of Christianity is to enter in, like literally, enter in through the power of the Holy Spirit who works inside of you to build this up and and bring you into the life of God. There's a great passage. One of my uh, favorite books in in the whole Bible is is 1 John. Um, I love it because at the beginning, right, you have this old man who's writing this letter, and, and, and he says, uh, he starts, in fact, I think it's a great place uh, from an apologetic standpoint is with stuff we've been talking about today on the historical Jesus where he says, hey, I'm writing these things to you about the things that I have seen with my eyes, right? He's an eyewitness. The things I've heard with my ears that I've touched concerning the word of life. Like here's this man who's writing to you and me to say, I saw him. I heard him speak. I touched him with my hands, Right? 
Um, and he goes on to say in chapter 3, it's like, it's like he, he's, he's teaching and then he just has this outburst. And, and what's cool is when you read in Greek, uh, there's this phrase and it's an idiomatic expression. You guys know what idioms are, right? Like it's, like it's uh, raining cats and dogs or something like that. It's kind of tough to, to translate. So if you go to another country that doesn't share the same idiomatic expressions as we do, then you use idioms and people look at you like you're crazy, right? <laughs> right? Like raining cats and dogs and people are like, what? Yeah. Um, as a cat lover, Nika would love that, you know. <clears throat> it's raining cats, yes, right? Um, and I'm, as, a, as an infantryman, I'm like plucking them out, you know, as they come down. <laughs> Y'all are like, what? <clears throat> Stuff just got weird. Um, hey, keep it real, you know. But anyway, this idiomatic expression is, is literally, um, he's describing the kind of love that God has. And the idiomatic expression is, what country is this from? What? What country is this from? It's like the, the, it's this foreign deal where he says, um, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. What kind of love is that? What, what country is that love from? Right? It, it's, it's foreign to any of our human experience because it's divine. It's the divine love. It's unconditional love that meets you where you are and doesn't care where you've been. It doesn't care what you've done. It doesn't care what you will do. He, well, it, it, it does care what you will do, but he's going to transform that, right, as he encounters you. And so he, he's like, hey, I will love you unconditionally. I will make you from a, a traitor and a rebel into my son. That's the kind of love of God, right? See what great love the Father's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. The first part of walking in discipleship to Jesus is to enter into the divine life. And the second part of it is just to remain in him. Not to work and do great things for him. Not to spend your life out in conquest for Christ, right? No, just stay. The last thing I want my son to do when he comes to me is to talk about, Oh, daddy, I got all this stuff I'm going to do for you. I'm like, no, dude, sit with me, right? Um, Sit with me and I'll make you into the kind of person whereby I can accomplish what I'm doing through you. It's totally different. Andrew Murray said this, and uh, allow me to quote him at length as well. He said, to remain does not demand the doing of some great thing or that we must first lead a holy and devoted life. No, it is simply weakness entrusting itself to a mighty one to be kept. The unfaithful one casting self onto one who is altogether trustworthy and true. Abiding in him is not a work that we have to do as a condition for enjoying his salvation. It's, but it's a consenting, it's a passive receiving to let him do all for us, in us, through us. It's all about him and what he is doing. It's a work that he does for us, the fruit and the power of his redeeming love. Our part simply is to just yield, to trust, to wait, to see what he, he is engaged to perform. It's this quiet expectation and confidence resting on the word of Christ that in him there is an abiding place prepared that is so sadly lacking among Christians. How convicting is that? You know what I'm saying? 
They scarcely take the time or the trouble to realize that when he said abide in me, he's he's not telling you to do something. He's offering himself to you. Do you get that? The, The keeper of Israel, he doesn't sleep or slumber with all his power and love as, as the living home of the soul, where the mighty influence of his grace will be strong to keep, will be, will be stronger to keep than all the Christians' feebleness to lead astray. That's good. The love of God will keep you, and that love that keeps you is stronger than your feebleness and your desire that would lead you astray from it when you remain in him. The idea they have of grace, and he's, he's talking about you know, most Christians, the idea we have of grace is this, that, that our conversion and pardon are God's work, but now, in gratitude to God, it's, it's our work to live as Christians and to follow Jesus. There's always the thought of a work that has to be done, and even though we pray for help, and um, still the work is ours, right? They, we fail and continually become hopeless, and the despondency only increases the helplessness. No wandering one. As it was Jesus who drew you when he spoke, come. So it's Jesus who keeps you when he says, abide. The grace to come and the grace to abide are alike from him alone. You are not under the law with its inexorable due, but under grace with its blessed believe what Christ will do for you. Yes. And if the question is asked, but surely there's something for us to do, then the answer is our doing and working are but the fruit of Christ's work in us. It's still about him. It's when the soul becomes utterly passive, looking and resting on what Christ is to do, that its energies are stirred to their highest activity, and we work most effectively because we know that he works in us. It's as we see in those words, in me, the mighty energies of love reaching out um, after us to have us, to hold us, um, that all the strength of our will is called to abide in him. I want you to remember this, this, this term. It's called actively passive. What do you do to remain in Christ? Do you do nothing at all? No, I don't think that's the answer. But, you, but the work that you do, that you do is, is, is active, but it's to passively receive the love of God. So the answer is, find out what stirs your affections for Jesus. Don't go keep some moral to-do list or ethical thing or accomplish some mission for him. You need to go be with Jesus. The, the risen and living Savior and Lord. Right? That is your chief responsibility as a Christian. Um, find out what stirs your affections for Jesus and then actively practice those things. Um, there's a handout that um, if, if you didn't get the email from Sylvia, then as you leave, make sure we've got your email address because I've got a document for you that I think would be really helpful in regard to this, okay? Especially in a culture where we like to run really hard and really fast and do a lot of stuff, right? It's easy to forget this. It's really easy. And then it becomes about you and not about Jesus. And then you've turned into a vessel through whom God is moving to use, um, a clean vessel for him to use, into you trying to accomplish your own agenda. And that's really dangerous, all right? Just to be totally frank. We started off by asking the question, who do you say that I am? Well, I think this is who Jesus is. So I, I think the appropriate answer for um, the historical Jesus who lived and, and breathed and died and, and rose from the dead, um, as we've covered all throughout today, is this. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What has Jesus done? Jesus has demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were still a sinner, while you were in a Um, While you were a a rebel, a a, a traitor against God going your own way, Christ died for you. That's the love of God. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Did you get that? That's a pretty extensive list, right, of things that are out there that could separate you from the love of God. And none of them do. You need to walk away from this conference today with the um, unquestioned, deep, abiding conviction that God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He's not impressed with all of the bells and whistles that you can create for him. He just loves you. He wants to know you. He wants, as my son would come up to me, he wants you to enter into his life. He didn't create you for anything else but this, but for you to enter in and to know and to walk in the love of God. That is when you enter into the ultimate reality that you were created for, and that is the love of God. Regardless of where you are, I mean, look, some of you guys came in here today and you're just like, dude, uh, maybe this would be an encouragement for me because I feel like I'm just like whiffing like left and right, just with life in general. You know, you're kind of one of those times where you wake up and you're just like, I just suck at life, you know. Um, everything's horrible. Um, and, and you may be one of those people, I, I, I ask my wife, I kind of am sometimes, right? Every glass is always half empty. And, uh, and, and then some of you also are, are, might come in and be like, man, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good, but uh, I really need to kind of double down over here to really kind of grow so that God would be pleased with me. Hey, wherever you are, right? It doesn't matter where you are. The, the invitation to you is the same. Come to me, everybody who's weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the sovereign over all creation. He is the, he, he is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of the stars and the skies and the earth. And then out of the earth, you and me. And we're broken, but he's fixing us. 
He has fixed and will continue to fix us. And one of these days, hey, one of these days, he's going to make us totally whole again. So who do you say that I am? I don't think anybody could probably answer that um, question as well as S.M. Lockridge.